<laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. In Search of Darkness is an upcoming horror documentary that comprehensively tells the story of 80s horror in all of its bloody nostalgic glory. Having completed a successful Kickstarter campaign that surpassed its goal on day two, director David Weiner is currently raising finishing funds for the film on Indiegogo, and horror fans could not be more excited. In the midst of all of this rampant nostalgia for all things 80s, In Search of Darkness celebrates the most iconic decade in horror history and features interviews with such people as Jeffrey Combs, Stuart Gordon, Brian Usna, Joe Bob Briggs, Mick Garris, Larry Cohen, Lee Wannell, Joe Dante, Barbara Crampton, Heather Langenkamp, Dee Wallace, Keith David, Greg Nicotero, Bill Mosley, Kane Hodder, Sean Cunningham, and Tom Holland, plus many many more. This is really going to be incredible. If you haven't seen the trailer yet, I highly recommend you go check it out. Go to 80shorrordoc.com to donate to their Indiegogo campaign today, but hurry because the campaign closes on March 30th. I enjoy talking to David a whole lot. He's a very passionate and knowledgeable filmmaker, and we dove deep into the documentary and did a whole bunch of geeking out about all things 80s. Here is David Weiner, director of In Search of Darkness, the definitive 80s horror documentary. David Weiner, great to see you. So as far as the documentary, I'd, uh, I first of all couldn't be more excited about it. I think it's more relevant than ever for there to be finally a definitive 80s horror documentary. And I, I'm a child of the 80s, so this is just, I'm sure you're getting this from everybody, but it's such a refreshing glimpse down memory lane and I cannot wait for it. So where, where did the idea come from? I'd love to know how it got from the original idea to where it is now. Well, to, to hit the first point of what your description was, I, it isn't actually uh, an obvious thing that people are responding so positively to, to this project. You never quite know what you're going to get, you know, especially with the documentary in there. You know, there are many horror documentaries that have come before this one. And I think what is very unique about this particular project is that it hits this kind of sweet spot where it really is focusing on the the art, the artist, the mastery of, of a transforming genre in a particular decade and being able to sort of track not only how films changed and evolved and technology within the films changed and evolved, but how the, uh, the way people consume these movies, the technology, you know, changing from being able to see it not only on the big screen or even the drive-in, but of course on VHS or cable. I mean, it, it really changed the dynamic of not only how we watch these movies, but who could watch these movies and if you were old enough. Um, that being said, this idea uh, first came from uh, Robin Block, who is uh, the executive producer of the film uh, with Creator VC. Uh, that's his company. And uh, he came up with this vision uh, that not only to do this film, but uh, several other documentaries that are 80s centric. He's finishing up an uh, uh, action documentary called uh, In Search of the Last Action Heroes. Oh, wow. Uh, we're doing this, In Search of Darkness. And then uh, right after this, we're in development on a, a film called In Search of Tomorrow. And that's also 80s sci-fi movies. Oh, wow. So you guys are just tripling down on 80s, 80s, 80s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
Exactly. So I'm sure you're the perfect person to ask, but a lot of people have theories as to why there is so much rampant, obsessive 80s nostalgia happening right now in pop culture where everybody, in one way or another, is either echoing the 80s or having just straight up homages to it. What do you think was so magical about that time period, particularly for horror? I think uh, the first reason why we're getting so much of it now is that the people who were kids and adolescents and growing up with it in the 80s are now the ones who are the creators. They're making the projects. They're making the films. They control the media and the output. And it's kind of a cyclical, cyclical effect in terms of uh, the people who are old enough to spend the money on and consume also want a taste of their childhood. Mm. And that's why, that's why you get so many of these, uh, these remakes, good, bad, or ugly. Uh, you know, I, I hear great things about Pet Cemetery coming up, but then for every Pet Cemetery you have, and I have not seen it, but arguably a child, Child's Play reboot that right. may not be necessary. But it's tapping into a, a complete nostalgia feed that people want. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are many, many, many folks who are arguing for enough of the re enough of the reboots, enough of the remakes. Let's have some original content and hand in hand with that we're getting a lot of great original content, but for everything that's really new, you're kind of standing on the shoulders of, of ideas that came before you. And, uh, is it a question of creating some originality out of inspirations or literally doing a, a bald-faced remake or reboot. Uh, and, you know, to that point, if you think about something like Stranger Things, uh, that's really, really, really sort of capitalizing on, on the nostalgia for the 80s. But uh, I think it's a very unique creation in that you ultimately, as a miniseries, I think it's an amazing success because there's so many nods to its 80s sources, whether it's, you know, John Carpenter or Stephen King or even John Hughes. Um, it's, it's really many, many nods and loving, uh, tips of the hat to those right. inspirations. Whereas if you would, if you had made that into a two hour film, it would feel like, in my opinion, an absolute derivative ripoff. Yet you can get away with it because there's so much great story and character development. Uh, it, it, it feels absolutely right. Now that makes a lot of sense. Well, my big theory on why we're seeing such rampant nostalgia is because I think that nowadays people have just gotten so sick and tired of CGI and people f kind of are yearning to see creatures and effects that they can actually feel. Whereas, I mean, CGI driven movies, they can be fun, but to me, to me, a Marvel movie can be a lot of fun, but it's kind of disposable where you walk out of the theater with the exception of some like Deadpool, Guardians of the Galaxy, Thor. Um, but some of them are like, okay, that was a good time, but it doesn't resonate. It doesn't, you don't really feel the effects. You don't really feel the creatures. You don't believe it. But I, I mean, my theory is that it's, it's the, the, the nostalgia is very much driven by practical effects. Is that something that you, I mean, obviously, particularly with horror, is that a theory that you are exploring in this movie? Yeah, oh, absolutely. You know, it's funny. There's, there's also sort of that element of, of the certain filmmakers and the studios of the time. A lot of people were sort of going after that, say, like that Amblin feel. Right. You know, that's the house with the clock in its walls. You know, uh, Eli Roth would talk about how he wanted to make uh, kind of make an Amblin movie for present day with that initial vibe. Uh, and of course, that's a very CG CGI heavy film. Um, we absolutely explore that in Search of Darkness because 
there was an explosion of uh, practical effects and and the, the special effects maestros, you know, whether it was Rick Baker, Tom Savini, uh, they they would put together amazing, believable effects that everyone else wanted to do just like that. And uh, practical effects became just so prevalent and it, it started to define these movies. So not only do we talk to those folks, we, we talk to the likes of, say, you know, uh, you know, Tom Woodruff and Greg Nicotero in the film, um, looking to talk to Tom Savini as well. Uh, about why, you know, why, why did this seismic shift happen? You know, you could look at, at the likes of uh, periodicals, you know, Fangoria, for example, really took, it made these guys center stage and put these guys on the cover. And so you'd not only read about uh, movies and what was coming up and what was coming out, but you'd also find out about not only what they were about, but how they were made and, and, and how these effects were done because, uh, people really, I would say, especially in a post Star Wars world where you're like, not only do I was I blown away by by an amazing story experience, people really wanted to explore why and how these things are done. Right. For me, Star Wars was that movie, but I also have to say, American Werewolf in London was that movie. You know, I remember reading in Life magazine there was this huge spread about the making of the the effects of American World in London and you know they show a picture of Rick Baker and his team putting David Norton halfway into the floor just to change his body shape during the transformation and I'm like oh my gosh that's how they did that um it's it's something that uh we're really really enjoying uh it, it it's very much a definition of what this movie is about but there's so much more to it as well. Very cool. And it's funny that you mentioned Eli Roth's newest movie because I mean, I was just having this conversation with somebody that particularly in the eighties and into the early nineties, there were a lot of kind of horror movies for kids. Some of which were f completely, totally frightening. Even some kids movies like who framed Roger Rabbit has some really frightening imagery in it. <laughs> and, um. Uh, it just seems like Eli Roth is attempting to bring that back. And I, I don't know if, if kids were kind of tougher in the 80s, but I grew up on movies like Monster Squad and Pol Poltergeist is PG. When you look at that movie now, some of the shit that goes down in it is, is way too terrifying for kids, particularly nowadays. Um, and something evil this way comes and little monsters. Did you feel like there was more of a cultural acceptance of horror back in the 80s, particularly in the context of kids movies and do you think we're not seeing that as much because we're people are just flat out raising their kids to be not as uh, not as strong or not I as think, brave I rather? Think, I think um, actually there was a cultural rejection of it. Um, you know, you talk about poltergeist, but you can also talk about say uh, you know gremlins, um, uh, you know, PG and, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Those are two. Those are the two movies that are singled out that that enabled or or that that be, began the change with the MPAA about wanting to find something in between PG and R. So that's where you had the 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 introduction of PG-13. Oh, and, I never knew that. Yo, yeah. Uh, so so basically PG movies were getting a little too rough for the kids. Um and they needed, you know, they, but R was just too prohibitive and especially from the financial standpoint of, of uh, failure or success based on whether or not the kids, you know, especially out, you know, out of school for the summer can see a movie. 
You know, they, they this this made a big change. But the thing is, uh, what '80s horror is also very much defined, like I said, with the the cable and the VHS element. Um, uh, basically, because horror, Tom Holland loves to call horror the redheaded stepchild, <laughs> right? And uh, uh, horror, I think, g- gained momentum and acceptance. And by the time you saw franchises really taking a foothold with Nightmare on Elm Street and Friday the Thirteenth, and uh, you know, beginnings of the Hellraiser and 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 even Child's Play and Chucky, by that time, people knew exactly. Uh, what to expect from horror was becoming much more widely accepted. But in the early to mid 80s, people would have to go uh, the indie route to get things done. And there was a lot more freedom that way. But there was a rejection of the fact that, you know, they knew that if they were going to be slapped with a rate with an X rating, not for sex, but for violence, uh, the only way they could do it, uh, make money on, you know, a return on their investment was to go straight to video. Because uh, if you know if they didn't want to cut the movie uh, for creative uh, reasons, got it. I, I, you know, it, it, it's it's such a rabbit hole, but I think it's a very interesting question, and that's definitely one of the things uh, that we we uh, investigate in this film, and people like to talk about from the perspective of being the ones who did it. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the other thing is that the '80s, obviously, you made the film on it, um, was was prolific for horror, and there was so many original titles and so much creativity and so many risks being taken. And I think a part of it was people were seeing what practical effects could do. I think part of it was attributable to the revolution of practical effects, and directors were able to conceive of things. Steve Johnson talks about this time period and said that now during the late seventies and early eighties, that's when directors were able to realize like, Oh my God, whatever I can think of in my head, I can probably find somebody who can build. And then their imaginations just ran wild. But from your, uh, from, from, from producing the film or directing the film, um, what did you find to be some of the creative forces in Hollywood or some of the, whatever was happening in Hollywood that enabled the eighties to be just so insanely fantastic and particularly creative and risk-taking for horror. Uh, I, I would, I would argue that the thing is, is a, a big change. The, you know, American werewolf and the thing together and, and, and you could, you could put the howling in there as well. Yeah. In, in the early eighties, people realized, well, you know, you can make a transformation and you can make it believable. But the thing just blew it all out of the water where you could just in, in, in harsh lighting, you could make over the top outrageous special effects. And uh, a lot of people don't realize, you know, the thing is really considered to be an absolute 80s classic and a horror classic that's timeless at this mm-hmm. point. But but uh, John Carpenter got lambasted by the original the fans of the original because, you know, the thing is a remake right. of, the, of the Howard Hawks, Howard Hawks film. He was he he was he's still to this day he's licking his wounds and <laughs> how how people just said you know the reason why this movie is awful is because the effects are just over the top and too much but it was it was like a it was like a, a dog whistle to all the other filmmakers saying wow we could do this too mm-hmm. this is you know let's see if we could overdo it you know on purpose and really just go over the top and so you have Sam Raimi you have Stuart Gordon with you know, Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, Reanimator, From Beyond, where they're like, all right, it's already, the limit's been pushed. The envelope is already just, it's, it's, it's just ripped and, and destroyed. What else can we do? 
to make ourselves stand out. And, and they really racked their brains and they had the technology to do it. So the Steve Johnsons, the John Beekler, who, you know, sadly just passed away, uh, you know, Mark Showstrom, uh, Nicotero. I mean, it, it's just a, it's just a laundry list of, of rock star uh, special effects folks, you know, Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff, who just made this into just a believable world. And I'll, I'll add one more thing. This in terms of looking back at this yeah. stuff now. Um, and in terms of how present day films, you know, the CGI is just way over the top. You may have noticed that currently the, this, this pendulum is kind of swinging back. And there was a, there was such a reliance on CGI that people, it just every, every day people were lamenting the fact that there's nothing tangible on the screen and that you'd rather have a puppet than a CGI creature because at least it's tangible and you could you could tell that they're the actors are interacting with something on screen. Oh yeah, and that's difference. And so now you'll find that uh, when you look back at these movies, even the worst movies, arguably for whatever you want to consider them bad for, whether it's just you know the dialogue or even just bad cheesy effects, they were actual effects, and they're, they're fun to watch simply because you knew that on set people mm-hmm. were not only interacting with these things, but they were being splattered with blood. There were you know, knee deep, elbow, elbow deep, face deep in these things. And uh, it was really happening and you could really feel it while they were filming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, I just, I think that people after a while would enjoy CGI driven movies, but it wouldn't, it didn't have that same sense of movie magic where in E.T. is a perfect example. If E.T. was done today and it was CGI, it would not have had nearly the impact that it did, but something that you, a creature that's practically built that has that much, it has that much emotional resonance because it people, your subconscious just believes it. Yeah. But yeah, the pendulum luckily is swinging. I mean, we got, sorry. I, well, I just wanted to interject with ET. It's really kind of interesting. I I'm kind of glad that when uh, Steven Spielberg re-released it on Blu-ray he left it mostly alone. I think there was a little strategic sweetening here and there, but uh, it's it's it doesn't matter, you know. People people believe what was going on. I mean, I mean, some of the elements that he did on set were just astounding. You know, he he had a, a you know person walking on their hands to to create a specific gait for ET. You know, oh, wow, so he walks like, and it's oh, it's 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 really interesting. Yeah. Um, but it's funny, I, I, I always think about when I, I saw E.T. first run in the theater, and I remember I didn't know anything about it other than it's the brand new Steven Spielberg movie. I can't wait. What is it? It's about an alien. Let's watch mm-hmm. it. And these, I was watching it in movie land in Yonkers, New York, where they had like four different theaters. And uh, the movie starts, and if you recall, in the beginning of the movie, you see E.T. from afar in the forest, barely, and he's kind of waddling along, and it's not... It's not those aliens from Close no. Encounters. And you're thinking, what? <laughs> what's going on? And there's that moment where you're like, wait a minute. Is this going to be awful? And I remember the, there were two girls right in front of me. And they turned to each other and they said, oh, my God, this is awful. I told you we should have seen Daughter of the Dead. <laughs> and But they stuck around. And I, I will always remember they were bawling by the end oh. of the movie. No, that sounds about right. But yeah, I mean, it, it is, I think it's that pendulum is swinging back when you have major directors like J.J. Abrams, who with Star Wars, his big decree was we're going to do as much practically 
as we can. We're going to build the aliens. We're going to build the creature effects as much as possible. Obviously, CGI where needed. Um, also, Guillermo del Toro is a perfect example of blending the two. And even James Wan, who did uh, um, Aquaman, which was a CGI fest, but he really made an effort to build as many of those sea creature costumes as he possibly could. He didn't have to do that, but he just, a lot of directors who are in a place to be able to do that are doing it. And I mean, the problem is, and Alec Gillis explained this to me, was that producers don't like paying for the effects twice. In other words, they don't like paying for it on set and then paying for it after in post by having to dress it up, so to speak. So they're just like, let's just do everything CGI driven. But uh, luckily, I think Hollywood is catching on to the fact that practical is effective. Alec Gillis and Tom Woodruff are kind of like the uh, they're, they're, they're the they're the uh, they're, they're the story that uh, I'm trying to find the word to best articulate it. But they're the kind of the cautionary tale. Uh, because they did the thing where uh, they did this thing sort of it was the, it turned out to be a prequel yeah. at the time everyone thought it was a reboot but the point is they they it was it was mostly practical effects but uh, it was a considerable budget to be able to do to have to do that and so the producers wanted to go CGI and they they kind of fought for a, a halfway point that they weren't happy with and they still did a lot of of, of uh, practical effects, but the CGI ultimately won off and won won over and uh, and sort of overran the the practical effects. And so what you see is really this sort of hybrid where neither quite works because they don't complement each other. Yeah, it sounded heartbreaking because they I mean worked on that for so long, and then they did it and they filmed it and it worked great. All the effects that were super complicated worked great, but then they CGI'd over their practical effects and added all this unnecessary like squirming pulsating cgi things that just don't even look good but yeah that was heartbreaking well the you, we're at a stage now I, I actually talked to mike doherty when he was talking doing krampus and um i th i think what's interesting now is is these filmmakers are very savvy and they know that the people who are watching these movies have, have a have a, a footly rooted in in a desire for practical effects so what they do is they use practical effects, but there's a certain amount of CGI sweetening in there. And I think, I think that's great. But ultimately, it's, we're kind of in this strange, uncanny valley territory right now because we're so used to everything being CGI now, you quite don't even realize or appreciate what is a practical effect because you don't even know anymore. And so it, it, it's really the fine-tuning and the sweetening of, these CGI, of the CGI over the practical effects that I, I think people are really finally starting to uh, understand how it best serves the story. Uh, and, and, yeah. and one last element, you know, you've got JJ talking you know, about, you know, going back to practical effects because these movies are so, the fans are so dialed in to how these things are made. I think they're wise to uh, appease the fans, to let them know that they understand that, this is how it needs to be made because this is what we ultimately want. And we don't want sort of another Transformers, you know, Michael right. Bay fest. Yeah, exactly. Speaking of the thing, did you even try to get Rob Bottin in your movie? Uh, he, well, he's, <laughs> yeah, him and JD Salinger, basically. <laughs> uh, here, here's the thing with our movie. We have 40 plus people and we're still adding more. Um, but the thing is, 
there are so many people and there's only so much time. And this is like a party where I wish I could invite, I can invite everybody, but it's, it's standing room only at this point. And so everyone would be a valuable addition to our movie. But at a certain point, we just are trying to kind of uh, cross over as, as much as we can and, and cover as much ground as we can with, with, people representing certain elements. So Harry Manfredini, who has, has composed all the Friday the 13th movies, uh, save for the most recent one and, uh, uh, the house movies. And he's so prolific, you know, he's talking about composing. Um, you know, you have the effects folks, you have, uh, you have the actors, you, you have the producers, you have the directors, you have the, the critics. Uh, we have a, a variety, a, one wonderful cross section of people who are ex, extremely knowledgeable uh, and insightful, and and enthusiastic fans themselves. You know, Joe Bob Briggs is is wonderful to, you know, get his his patented uh, delivery and and wit and knowledge of these movies to punctuate what we've got already. Yeah, I love him. A um, couple of quick, just documentary specific questions. And I'm being a little selfish here because I'm making a documentary. Um, so just looking at the trailer, I just looking at all the clips that you have in there. I would only, it, it sounds like it appears to be just a rights and usage nightmare. <laughs> or are you guys able to mostly rely on um, utilizing fair use rights to, to get access to all of that footage or to get the rights cleared for all of that footage? Well, it's it's always an ongoing saga with that kind of stuff. Uh, and and the basically what I'll say to that is that it's all about context. And so right. when you are, you know, uh, we, we, we have the 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 attorneys who who cleared room two, three, seven are, are the folks who are on our team. Oh, great. Uh, and so uh, what I could ultimately say about that is, uh, you know, doing promotions, uh, pr- you know, promotional material. And then selling an actual film are, are two different things. And when it comes to it, we're going to go through it with an absolute fine tooth comb because, it, you know, getting rights and clearances uh, versus fair use, uh, it, it's, it's a giant beast. And, I, yeah. you know, I, I, that, that's, that's uh, Robin Block's domain. But the idea is to ultimately uh, make sure that, uh, like you said, because you're, you're a filmmaker yourself, you want to be able to uh, have – uh, be able to do it and uh, have the fair use element by making sure that the context is is relevant when you're when you're showing these clips. So, yeah. you know, you're name dropping a film, you're talking about a scene in the film or an actor in a film or a moment in a film and you're describing that uh, you're 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 free and clear for the most part. You know, you got to cover your your butt, but you're you're free and clear to be able to use that in context of what you're talking about. But, uh, you know, just to show a montage for the sake of montage is a different story. Yeah. Uh, even though montage is going to be so cool. Um, can you talk about your Kickstarter strategy? Cause you guys were particularly effective with crowdfunding. Did you either turn to an agency or have a specific strategy or any advisors? How were you able to be so successful on these different crowdfunding platforms? Uh, once again, I, 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 I credit, executive producer Robin Block as being the mastermind behind the whole thing. And the nutshell version is, uh, uh, he's, he's, first of all, he's, he's tapping into something that, that there's an absolute hunger for. And because the Kickstarter, we met our goal in the first two days and we made about a hundred thousand over that. And that, you know, over 30 days, um, 
it's, it's, there's an absolute appetite for this kind of stuff. Not only the horror element and the horror community, but the, uh, you know, the, uh, the nostalgia for it, you know, being able to sort of relive your childhood and want to watch this stuff and then run out and binge, you know, watch this movie and then run out and binge, you know, whatever franchise or movies you'd like to afterwards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so he did come up with a strategy that, uh, you are really front loading this Kickstarter with uh, a group of advisors who are very well connected uh, by way of uh, social media and uh, connected to the horror community and uh, are some of the people who are part of the film, you know, who are on camera. And uh, you put together an advisory group and you do lots of promotion and then you, you kickstart it. And once it's out there, you really got to actively, actively promote. And that's what we're doing now. You know, we did the Kickstarter uh, in October and now we're doing the Indiegogo. Uh, we're basically returning now for the Indiegogo. So if you missed an opportunity to back the film uh, in October, this is now your last chance to be part of this film and to be to be a part of the process of, of backing something that that is really going to be, you know, you're going to have your name on this and you're going to be proud to be a, a supporter of a film like this and uh by way of indiegogo we're doing promotion again you know we're really really making sure that people not only know about this movie and and spread the good word if they're if they're really interested in fans and know of fans but um it 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 allows us now to show off a little bit of what we've done it allows us to be able to show the footage that we've shot and and sort of show off our chops of what we've got in the can and and what this film can be uh but it's really right now primarily an opportunity not only to back but to you know reserve your copy of the film because it's the only way you're going to be able to get the movie at this stage of the game that's great and and your indiegogo campaign is live now until march 30th is that right correct until the end of the month you can go to it's the easiest to just go to 80s horror 80 s 80s horror doc.com or look us up on indiegogo in search of darkness and, uh, you know, you'll see a variety of, of, of various packages to, to uh, back. Okay, great. Last couple of questions. So everybody knows that horror as a category tends to rise during time periods of social unrest. And it seems like just by looking at the trailer that you did dive into a little of this in, in, um, in Search of Darkness. What were some of the kind of either sociopolitical... Um, forces that were that were at work that were particularly kind of reflected in horror. I mean, Joe Dante says that monsters are metaphors, and usually most horror movies are symbolic of something. But what were some of the forces at work that were really influencing the '80s horror scene? And were there any particular movies that were just um, kind of specifically metaphorical for what was happening? Sure. I mean, you get a, you've got a wide variety of things and, and, you know, there, there are a variety of ways to look at movies reflecting a time, you know, sometimes art is art for art's sake and it's nothing more. Uh, and many filmmakers will say, I just wanted to make a buck and make a creative, uh, uh, statement, but not a political statement or a sociological statement. Uh, well, others, you could look at, uh, you know, I think they're always the most obvious one. You've got to, uh, you've got John Carpenter's They Live in 1988. You know, he was really responding to uh, the corporate raiders and the greed is good uh, Reaganomics corporate raiders uh, 
you know, Wall Street folks, uh, and just the 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 rampant over commercialization all around him, where everything was just for a buck. And uh, his response to that was, "They live," and you know, you've got Roddy Piper putting on, uh, you've got an alien invasion movie that's also a bit of a horror movie as well, and you got Roddy Piper and Keith David who put on these uh, metaphorical glasses, and they could see, you know, all the all the hidden messages, and uh, you know, chew bubblegum and you know, kick ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great. I mean, you could go on and on. You know, a lot of people like point to uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly as a metaphor for AIDS. Um, some people would argue that it's not that overt as well. Uh, it's, it's more the overt of, of, uh, of disease. And, uh, you know, he was huge on body horror. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you can look at the fly as, uh, you know, the, the wasting away of, of a loved one that's very close to you, you know, and, and having them lose their humanity right in front of your eyes. And there's absolutely nothing you can do. Uh, you know, sometimes it, it's, it's a, a bit of a microcosm, uh, 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 observation as opposed to uh, an over broader spectrum. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So everybody knows the kind of key 80s gems and that everybody's favorite movies like The Howling, American Werewolf, Evil Dead 2, Reanimator. What are some of the most unexpected and undiscovered horror gems of the 80s that are a lot lesser known that are some of your favorites? Oh, wow. How much time you got? <laughs> All the time you want to spend. <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. We'll go alphabetical and we'll go by year. No, oh, wow. Great. Uh, no, we, uh, one, of the, one of the real uh, joys of being able to do this documentary, and I will give you the answer, but we've been able to sit down with, with all, these, all these folks for easily an hour or more. Some have gone hour and a half or even close to two hours because – You'll find someone like, you know, uh, I'll, I'll single out, say, uh, you know, Bill Mosley uh, and Caroline Williams uh, of Text Chainsaw Massacre 2, who are, are uh, in- impressively well, well-read and, and well-versed with 80s horror and uh, really do deep dives. And so in, in our efforts to make sure that we're not just doing the broad strokes and we really are trying to be as quote-unquote definitive as possible we are talking about some of these stranger weirder or weirder movies um so yeah now i have to give you an answer right you know it's like uh-huh. what's, your, what's, what's your favorite movie i don't know it's really it's really it's really more what what have i seen recently that's really made uh a mark on me uh two things that are popping into my head right now are uh brian yuzna's society Mm. and uh brain dead uh that's so crazy those are those would have been my exact two picks that's so strange i always recommend those to people yeah i read and they're a perfect double feature i yeah well i you know i i will um those movies just, uh, uh, you know, it, it's hard. It's hard to have some perspective because those two movies, I do believe, are streaming on Shudder currently. So I, I think they're finally getting uh, a broader audience for anyone who you know subscribes to Shudder. As you know, they they get to see these movies. But um, you know, uh, Brain Dead is 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 super. It's sort of a, a Lynchian, weird, comedic film that is uh you know that's definitely making some some statements uh, and it's just odd but it's really fun you know and it's sort of like a you know this sort of sort of strange strange cousin to like say basket case yeah uh, yeah 
And know? he even shows up in it. You see Dwayne showing up on the on the subway. That's the greatest moment in, in my in the movie to me. You know, they just stare at each other, <laughs> they worry at each other on the, the subway. Yeah, um, I think yeah. that was a whole metaphor for Hannon Lauder's addiction. Yeah, I think he, he yeah, I think and in basket case too to to an extent. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, you know, you could take these movies at face value or you could find, you know, much deeper deeper things, you know, because you know, horror horror is is this sort of cathartic exercise uh where you're you're able to experience through other people's jeopardy or or extremely complicated situations things that you may or may not be dealing with or or repressing in your own life. Um, yet it's a safe way of experiencing that in the theater or, you know, on, you know, the TV screen. Um, gosh, what other movies? I mean, they're just so many, uh, I, I, what I've been doing right now is I've been really trying to sort of, uh, get the ones that are a little left of center that people aren't talking about as much. Um, it's funny. I, I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, <laughs> to talk Larry Cohen was, it was a great interview. Oh, nice. You know, because we got to talk about Q and then the stuff, but we also got to talk about the It's Alive franchise and, you know, mm -hmm. the, the weirdness of like It's Alive 3 and even Full Moon High. Uh, you know, he's like, I thought I was wearing, well, making the only werewolf movie. Everyone was making it, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, like I said. He's, a car he's such a character. I got to interview Steve Mitchell, who did his the documentary on Larry Cohen a few months ago, and that was a whole lot of fun. It's, it's you know, he... He's he was he's the definition of a maverick because yeah. he made the movies he wanted to make. You know, did he become famous in a name? Not really. His movies were well known at a certain to a certain degree, but they really were, were the indie spirit. And he really got to do anything he wanted. And if it wasn't anything, if it wasn't what he was allowed to do, he either just chose to do it and didn't tell anybody or he just chose not to do it. Right. So. Right. There you go. I mean, there's just such a laundry list of, of amazing movies out there. Uh, and, and so it's been a, a real treat for me to really do a deep dive and not just do the broad strokes of horror. Yeah. Very cool. Well, awesome, David. This was a whole lot of fun. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, everybody, thank you again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Don't forget to check out 80shorrordoc.com. That will take you to David's Indiegogo campaign. And again, the campaign closes on March 30th. So act fast and be a part of horror documentary history. Thanks a lot for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. If you want to really do me a solid, feel free to share this episode with your friends and family on social media. Thank you again for listening.